We hear all sorts of suggestions for the cause behind the housing crisis. Wild speculation driving up prices. Foreign investors parking their money into empty properties. Affordable rental being bought up and turned into ghost hotels. Or draconian and discriminatory zoning rules. The truth is, it's all of those things and more. This is a holistic catastrophe, a toxic system, and the forecast looks even more grim. But the common element in any crisis is fear. In the case of the housing crisis, it's fear over one of the most basic and universal human necessities. Fear makes it difficult to think big picture. Scarcity makes people hold tightly to what they've got. It makes us wary of any change because the slightest change could bring the roof crashing down on our heads. But fear and scarcity are also good business. Entire product lines, even industries, are built upon fear. And so, the housing crisis has meant big money for some, with the promise of even more. If you're lucky enough to own a home in a major Canadian city, that's your shelter, your private bank account, and your retirement policy. That's the dream that's been sold. And you're likely to protect that at all costs and fear any attempt to change the status quo you've profited by, to the detriment of everyone else. Your home is an investment, and you want to see it pay dividends. So how do we shake up this status quo, which has been widening the gap between the haves and have-nots for decades, when so many influential people have a personal stake in keeping things exactly the way they are? How do we convince people there is a better, more humane way to approach housing in Canada? How do we conquer fear and break our addiction to high home values? The answer to these questions is central to achieving a balanced supply of housing. This is The Overhead, understanding Canada's affordable housing crisis. In this four-part special presentation, we will examine approaches to reimagining the urban housing landscape in Canada to ensure everyone has access to a decent, affordable roof over their head. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Let's get into it. Dr. Paul Kershaw is a University of British Columbia professor, founder of the advocacy group Generation Squeeze, and author of the paper, Wealth and the Problem of Housing Iniquity Across Generations. The paper makes recommendations about how to tackle the growing housing inequality, which sees younger people, newcomers, and marginalized people squeezed out of housing opportunities. We look at each of these recommendations, but first, we have to define the problem. So, Paul, I wanted to begin by just asking, what is Generation Squeeze? Can you break down the mandate for that? Yeah, Generation Squeeze is a think and change tank that promotes generational fairness. That's uh, so what Canada works for all generations. And we see that as being critical so that our country actually invests in well-being from the early years onwards. We want everyone to have a chance to live up to their potential, enough time and money to enjoy life and the chance to leave our city, country, and planet better off than we found it. And whether we're talking about climate change or housing and affordability and housing wealth and equality or underinvestment in things like childcare or or large government debt. These are ways in which we are, as a society, leaving unfair, problematic legacies for those who follow in our footsteps, and it's making hard work not pay off for younger generations. Well, we're talking, to some degree, you start with Gen X and Millennials, Gen Z, not paying off like it used to, and um, it's not an avocado toast issue. It's not a cafe, too many coffee issues, not because you have a cell phone, and and Gen Squeeze is really working hard to try and bust the myth that uh, younger people aren't working hard today, that they're lazy or whatnot, and that actually there's a systemic problem that's causing their hard work not to pay off like it used to, and housing is at the epicenter of that issue. Right, and and housing uh, is what we'll be talking about uh, specifically. I am not an economist, uh, I'm not an expert, so I was hoping if... I'm going to try my best to define the problem as I understand it, and you can kind of tell me where I where I got it wrong, or, or you know, do we need to unpack it more? Does that sound fair? Interesting. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. So the problem as I see it, uh, you know, just as a casual observer is that uh, housing used to be uh, much easier to attain back in uh, previous generations, boomer generations, that kind of thing. And so people 
bought into it when it was affordable and sort of used it as the property values increased over the time as a sort of equity, as a retirement policy, uh, all sorts of things. It was once they got their foot in the gate, they were set. And that sort of goal is is just not realistic for, for generations where, you know, in cities like Toronto or Vancouver, uh, even putting a down payment on a, on a property to own is is just inconceivable. Yeah, I think he's, he's nailed it. I can give you some actual data to kind of back that up. So when my mom started out in the housing market in the mid-1970s, and this is, um, this is when sort of the bulk of baby boomers were coming of age as young adults, it took about five years of full-time work for the typical young adult to save a 20% down payment on an average price home. But if you flash forward to today, it now takes 15, 16, 17 years on average across the country, 21 in BC and Ontario, 29 years in Metro Vancouver and the greater Toronto area. And so what, what that means is that the, the major cost of living for young people uh, for anyone, but the major cost of living has gone up so much and full-time earnings available to young people, even though they're going to post-secondary more and they're taking on more student debt for that privilege, it's requiring so many more years of work to actually cover that cost. And as home ownership moves further out of reach, you have more and more young people competing for rental. And because you know there's greater competition for that rental and the supply isn't necessarily keeping pace, then you have rents on the rise. And so... Generations of younger folks are increasingly locked out of home ownership or taking on massive debts for that privilege. It's then uh, giving rise to more and more rents as they're trying, which makes it harder for them to save. And that's the hardship that's caused by home prices leaving earnings behind. But we can't just talk about the hardship because rising home prices just aren't uniformly bad. If you're actually a homeowner, the fact that home prices have risen dramatically for mm-hmm. so many years over decades now. That's actually made you wealthier. And I know of what I speak. I live in Metro Vancouver. I have actually been a homeowner now for 18 years. And last year alone, BC assessment, which every year measures, estimates people's housing values and property tax purposes, told me my home value went up by half a million dollars while I slept, while I watched TV, while I cooked in my kitchen. I'm a hardworking professor. I get well remunerated as a professor, and I have my and my employer at the University of BC paying to my pension. Over 18 years of being an, a professor at UBC, my pension is only worth half a million dollars. Mm-hmm. So let's just be clear, like 18 years of hard work from a well-paid prof gives rise to the same savings that last year I alone got from rising home prices. Right. We have to be cognizant of the fact that there is a cultural and a political addiction to high and rising home prices for many in this country because it makes us better off. And some people will resist that. When I say this in podcasts, which I have said many times, I'll get angry. You know, I'm not rich. But actually what we need to have right now is more and more of a dialogue about who's affluent and who's not. And the rise in home values is so disrupting and transforming class dynamics. You can have, let's take a young, young person, mid-30s, a well-paid lawyer making $200,000 but they're actually not able to break in into ownership in the GTA and, and the Trinidad Cooper, let's say, and so they're struggling to like rent a three-bedroom apartment. Are they rich because they have an income that puts them near the top 1%? Or actually, are they less affluent than, say, the senior who's got a fixed income of, say, $25,000, not very much at all, but they live in a million-dollar home that's paid outright? That is the dynamic we need to wrestle with more. But who's affluent there? Who isn't? It's not a straightforward answer. Mm-hmm. But definitely the low-income person, just because of their low income, isn't necessarily poor if they have a lot of housing wealth. Right. And politically, I, I can speak to this as someone who, who covers you know municipal politics, is uh, it, it creates a strange dynamic where you, you sort of have two classes of people, those who own, who tend to be heard more at community meetings and that kind of thing that they're taken as someone who has a stake in the community in a way that a renter may not, uh, you know, that's the perception. I don't actually believe that. But, uh, you know, homeowners are the ones who who get the attention. They vote in uh, councillors who will make sure to maintain uh, their their steadily increasing uh, property values. And uh, and that creates a lot of problems for people who can't get their foot in the door, who, who can't even afford to rent, let alone buy. Well, when you bring it down to the municipal level and you think about sort of city planning on that front, I think what you described is really accurate because our 
engagement with about what should happen to community tends to go and ask questions of those who are already there. Right. And it's fine. And our community engagement processes find it more challenging to then integrate the voices of people who would like to be there. And so as a matter of the lottery of one's birth timing or one's arrival into our communities, they immigrated, you know, that's a, that, that's not something we necessarily truly like when I was born in Canada, you know, I didn't choose that to happen to me. And I came about later than my mom did. My mom had an easier time of getting a home in a nice neighborhood near where I work. Right. Uh, I now live much further away from that. That's not, not of us chose those things. Um, and, and so we do need to think about how the lottery of timing needs to shape our public engagement about what should happen in neighborhoods now. I was actually having a, a conversation last night with a family member who is worried about the degree to which uh, the state of city of Vancouver is wanting to add more density in, in areas right now that are largely, you know, uh, condos um, or townhomes, I should say. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, the proposals are to get rid of the human scale. And I, I stopped the family member and, and I didn't do it well enough. And I, I need to go back and have the conversation further, but I'm like the human scale. Like, Sure. I, I know this person likes the view and, and they think their home is the right size, you know, for what they want. But there are so many folks who are decades younger, who are just as hardworking, just want the same opportunity to make a life and raise a family. And they can't actually be here because there's not the units that come and reach for what they earn with enough space uh, to actually have their families. And so the human scale, I thought it was such a powerful phrase. Uh, I guess it all depends on like what you have now and what you think is, you know, appropriate because there are many, many people who would have, you know, loved the chance to actually be in a, a 10, 15, 20 story building if it could give them, you know, three bedrooms so that each of their, you know, each of their kids had a little bit of space. And I think that's critical. I'll give you another example. You know, we proposed a, a surtax and a home value over a million bucks. I know you want to talk about that more. And, mm-hmm. and I, someone was engaging on Twitter from, I think it was Waterloo. And she said, well, I think, it, you know, I get the point, but I think we need to address the, the threshold at which the tax comes into place because a million bucks will buy you a starter, only a starter home with three bedrooms in Waterloo. And, and I said to the person in response, I'm like, really ask you to reconsider what you just said, because for many younger folks in Waterloo right now, that's the, own, the possibility of owning that three bedroom home at a million dollars, it's a luxury that is so out of reach for them. Right. And so it might just seem like your starter home, but the starter home, you know, that was available decades ago, it's gone up in value and made people who used it as a starter home much richer, and it's locked out so many others from the kind of housing security they were hoping for. And that, again, is the tension that we need more and more people to wrestle with. It's not comfortable always, but it's so important, and we can tap into some intergenerational love because that love between an older demographic and a younger demographic may not always play out in politics, but it does play out at the family table, whether we're meeting on Canada Day or Labor Day or Thanksgiving or whatever the next faith holidays that people may celebrate are. Mm-hmm. Towards bridging that gap, you, you've written a paper called Wealth and the Problem of Housing Inequity Across Generations. In that you propose, uh, you have a, a number of proposals, and I, I was hoping uh, to go uh, sort of one by one, uh, for our listening audience that, that may not be able to uh, parse a, a paper like that to, in layman's terms. Yeah, so we had four proposals. Right. And let me just start up like one that's really, really contemporary for people. So there's been a ton of conversation these days about inflation. Mm-hmm. I think our work actually really anticipated that. And they said, you know what? Statistics Canada is having a difficult time measuring housing inflation and they're not reporting to us that like we've actually been experiencing housing inflation for decades. And the the vexing thing this paper points out is that actually statistics Canada, when it's measuring inflation, it doesn't actually measure what's happening to housing prices. I don't want to get too much more technical than that, Mm -hmm. but it it might shock people, but it, it really isn't actually measuring what's happening to the purchase price of a home. Right measuring a bunch of other things related to housing, but not that. And by not measuring that, it's then not capturing that out for people who are not already homeowners, the cost or the, the, the value of their money or the amount of work they have to put in to even dream of becoming an owner is getting more and more out of reach. And because that can wasn't actually calculating that when it was measuring overall inflation, it was sending inaccurate signals to our Bank of Canada when it was setting its interest rates. And Bank of Canada is like, do we have an inflation problem? That says no. So they kept interest rates low, and that 
really helped to fuel rising home values. And we were saying, please, 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 let's change how we're measuring housing inflation so we send better signals to the Bank of Canada. And the Bank of Canada will then change its interest rate policy, not have it so easy to borrow cheap money, and that will have a dampening influence on housing prices. And lo and behold, we did raise interest rates in Canada recently, not largely really because of housing so much, but because of gas prices and because of food prices and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But if and, and when we did that, then home prices slowed. And they might actually be dipping in ways that will help affordability. But if only we'd been measuring this issue right years and years and years ago, we wouldn't have got ourselves into this housing unaffordability problem. So that was the first thing that we talked about. And we still need to make those changes. They haven't really been revised yet. That can because, well, interests are going up now because of the gas inflation, the food inflation. We don't want those things to get under control and then ignore housing problems down the road. So right. we're still working on that. Right. So that's one of the bullet points. Another one is, uh, and I was hoping you could explain a little bit about how the relationship between these crown corporations that are in charge of of these things, but uh, you'd like to harmonize the various crown corporations that are mandated to for this kind of thing, but uh, for lending for green co-op and affordable purpose-built rental. So we have the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, a really important crown corp in Canada that is responsible for our national housing strategy. Mm-hmm. We also have something called the Canada Infrastructure Bank. And it's largely responsible for making investments that are going to help green Canada's economy as we prepare to make a, ma- a range of transformations in our economy so that we can meet our net zero goals by 2050 and the incremental steps we need to do by 2030. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a reasonable division of labor between two important crown corps. One of the things that we've observed in this solutions lab that we did, by the way, I should give some context. This report comes out of a, a lab where we brought together dozens and dozens of thought leaders from the academy and from think tanks and financial institutions and housing experts, et cetera. And those, a number of those people pointed out the division of labor between the infrastructure bank and the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation makes sense. Generally speaking, housing is a place where we are addressing both our place to call home goals, but because the built environment is such a big contributor to our energy emissions, it's also a place where we have to be uh, fighting our climate change risks. Mm-hmm. And so we were saying, hey, the Canada Infrastructure Bank in particular is being reported to be under-investing in some of the loans that are going out that it wants to be putting more money into the economy to help green it. Housing is so desperate to build more supply, especially cooperative housing, especially purpose-built rental housing and other kinds of housing that actually comes in below market rates. And so the loans that we would, that the Canada Infrastructure Bank wants to get out to help green the economy, like, let's help actually merge its mandate to, with the Canada Mortgage Housing Incorporation so it can use more of the money that it's having a difficult time to push up to get into the housing sector. That will get more homes built which will help some affordability issues on housing, but it also can build those homes in ways that ensure that this moment as we're creating so much new supply, let's make sure that it is as energy as efficient as possible, that these have homes, that these, these extra costs up front to make them more energy efficient, which saves so much money down the road and reduce so many risks for our climate change down the road, let's invest in that now. So you're right, another recommendation coming out of this report is to merge the, uh, a little bit more the mandates of the Infrastructure Bank with the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, which doesn't cost government anything, but just helps them think about how they're planning the activities of these two critical crown corps. Right. And next is, uh, you talked about it a little bit, uh, is, is the idea of a, a surtax for uh, homes worth uh, a million or more. You know, cer- certainly that's the headline grabber because of... Uh, you know, because of the political clout that, uh, yeah, yeah, because it's a tax and, and the political clout that homeowners have. And, and, and as you said, the sort of um, cultural disconnect we have between like, well, how much does a million dollars get get you? And is that a lot of money or isn't it? Yeah, so I'll give a, a technical description and then I'll just give a little more of like what motivated it. So really quickly, about 10 to 12 percent of Canadians own principal residences that are valued at more than a million dollars. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one in 10 households in Canada is what we're talking about. And in other words, the vast, vast majority of Canadian households do not live in million-dollar homes. Right. Just it's, it's important to remind people, because sometimes you can, like, be in the GTA or not rank room, like, everybody across the country lives in multi-million-dollar homes. It's not true. It's a pretty rare experience. Though. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to draw people's attention to that. And we said, like, hey, you know, there's a, a foreign buyer's taxes now, or Ontario called them non-resident, uh, non-resident 
tax speculation tax or something like that. And we have uh, empty home taxes and taxes about speculation, and we are regulating short-term rentals. And, and I draw your attention to that because each of those tax measures is tended to go after what I like to call like an easy villain. Oh, housing and affordability doesn't have to do anything with me. It's all those other people over there making problematic decisions, whether it's the, you know, the person who doesn't live here using our housing as a place to park money or a money launderer or somebody buying an extra home that rather than renting it out to someone full time, they use it like a ghost hotel through like Airbnb. So it's easy for people to be kind of annoyed with those other people. But the observation driving so much of our report that you're referring to, to today is that systems, including the housing system, they don't sustain their trajectories over time because of a small number of actors. They sustain themselves over time because of the actions of a broad number of people in that system. And so our report is saying, hey, everyday regular Canadians, myself included, let's look in the mirror and ask ourselves, how might we be implicated in a housing system that tolerates home prices continually rising, 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 and leaving behind local earnings? And the answer to that goes back to something you and I have already chatted about. If you're a homeowner like me who's been in the market for some time, as home prices have gone up, we've got richer. We've got more equity, more security, more options. And so we wanted to, to have this conversation that, okay, politically, it's pretty hard to ask everyone who's benefited from hot rising home prices to potentially contribute more. But we said, let's, let's go at that sort of top 10-ish percent of folks living in the most affluent principal residences. And let's ask them to chip in a little bit more. And by a little bit, I really do mean a little bit for many people. So if you're in a, if you're in a home under a million dollars, our surtax proposal would cost, you know, there'd be no additional tax. If you're in a $1.1 million home, you, get, you pay a modest tax on the value of the home above a million bucks, it would add up to $200 a year. And you could actually defer it until your home is sold. If it was a $1.2 million home, it goes to 400. It rises over time. Well, I think when it gets to 2 million, it's about $3,500 a year. But if you're in a $2 million home, you're in like the top couple percent of households. And if you're just a middle earner making like 60 grand a year, you're paying over 10,000 in income taxes. So let's just put it all in context. So that's what we're doing. We're wanting to say, look, it's time to tax the things we want more of, like better incomes for middle and lower income folks less. And it's time to tax what we want less of, like housing prices that are out of control, more. And so we have suggested a bit of a tax shift. Let's try to relieve pressure on lower earners and middle earners and renters and ask those, myself included, who have been benefiting from what's harming others in the housing system to contribute slightly more. It would raise about $5 billion a year with which we could, in one election cycle, build 150,000 new units of housing that are below market and co-op and purpose-built rental Groups like the Cooperative Housing Federation of Canada or the BC Nonprofit Housing Association, the Ontario Nonprofit Housing Association, they have plans and they know what needs to get done and built. What they don't have is resources. Mm -hmm. This modest attack would be one way to ask those benefiting from rising home prices to contribute slightly more so that we can help those being locked out of the housing system and having less security have new opportunities to make a home that's in reach for what they earn. And the the last recommendation, uh, I think it is the most interesting Possibly the most complex because uh, it would involve local de- like decisions at the municipal level, decisions at the provincial level. But it's a pr- it's interesting to me. Uh, so what you're basically talking about is creating a a pool of uh, affordable rental properties. Uh, you, you call it an off ramp, uh, and not only that, but you you do have a a way to pay for it, or at least in part uh, that we can get into later. But first, can you sort of break down what what this plan for a housing affordability off ramp is? Yeah, so, and here I want to give a shout out to folks at Dark Matter Labs in the Canadian version of that, based in Quebec, who are actually really leading and stewarding this idea forward. And they really did a lot of the heavy lifting on this front, more so than me. Mm-hmm. So I want to just give them a, a nod there. But there's a few things just to say briefly. First, one of the ideas behind this off-ramp proposal is that actually we have this cultural tendency where many people are banking on rising home prices for their wealth accumulation and savings down the road. Mm-hmm. And the more we have Canadians actually anticipating that's how they're going to save down the road, the more you build this cultural momentum to hope home prices will continue to rise and to signal the politicians that's what we want. And so this policy, the offering is like, how do we give people a way to go and you know plan differently? 
And so it's an off ramp from this road we're already on where we all want home prices to rise, or so many people want home prices to rise like an off ramp. No, I want a different vision for my economy. And and the thinking then secondly is that those, especially younger demographic and, and some of the more you know, um, often more affluent younger folks who actually have bought in recently to a housing market have such inflated prices. Um, they'll have massive mortgages, mm-hmm. and you know that's a that's a real group that you know would were home prices to to go down quite significantly as in, you know interest rates rise or whatnot. You can have a group of people who are suddenly like, oh my gosh, my mortgage is worth more than my home, the value of my home, and, and you know they're going to be feeling nervous about that. And in those situations, when people are in financial constraints. We might say, oh, there's a bit of a soft landing that we, you know, we can offer you. In particular, you know, you could contribute, you could choose to contribute your current property into this pool of housing that will be in perpetuity non-market housing. It'll get your property get redeveloped. We'll put six units on it. You, you know, you have like a single attached or duplex right now. We'll get six units on it. We'll reserve one one for you that you'll rent indefinitely, and the other five will be uh, rented out to others geared to income. Mm-hmm. So people are like, well, there's a whole bunch of details there that, you know, I didn't entirely follow and I want to learn more about. And so I would send them to our report and I would send them to Dark Matter Labs to get more because we're not going to be able to cover it in its entirety and its complexity in what remains of this particular podcast episode. But the thinking is that you could have funding this approach, a bond, an opportunity for Canadians to invest in a bond that would give a rate of return that keeps up with inflation, et cetera, and a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that people would use that as like, oh, okay, I'm not hoping for massive windfalls, but I'm going to invest into this bond that's designed to pay for perpetually affordable homes. The, the rents that people are paying will go to give the returns on those bond investors, and the bond investors will put in the cash to actually take the you know, the, the pieces of property right now that are low density, single detached home duplexes, and then actually have the funds to add the, the sixplex that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the logic there. It's a complicated one. It's interesting. It's, it's still getting fleshed out further. And I think, you know, people are even trying to like, how can we sh- show proof of concept? And folks at Dark Matter Labs are doing a great job leading that. So to sum up, I mean, these are all good proposals. We're in a kind of a weird position politically uh, right now in Canada, uh, minority government and such. But uh, knowing that we could go to the polls anytime, how do you hope that we keep these conversations at the forefront so that, uh, you know, we, we maybe have a federal election about these issues specifically? I think there's a couple of issues that we need to address. And one we've been working hard for some time. You and I have been talking somewhat about specific policy details. Mm-hmm. But before we can get to those policy details, we need to actually have a conversation about what do people want from the housing system. Kind of get back to a fundamental place about values. Mm-hmm. And we had this conversation, like, do we want housing to be a place to call home or do we want it to be an investment strategy by which some get really rich? Mm-hmm. You can't really have both. If it's a good investment strategy, you want home prices to rise faster than other parts of the economy. But by definition, that creates an affordability. If you want prices to call home, you need home prices to stall and let earnings catch up. So we have actually, I think, at Gen Squeeze, been working hard to try and engage Canadians in a conversation that, look, what do you want from housing? And our answer should be, we should want it minimally to stall, if not fall somewhat, so that earnings are closer with that cost, our major cost of living is. So that's, I think, right now what we're fighting for a little bit. As interest rates have gone up and that has dampened the pressure on housing prices, we're fighting to have people say, don't say the housing market's weak right now because home prices are stalled. Say that it's finally reco- beginning to recover. Right. You see that shift? That's a shift in mindset. That's a cultural shift. And so I think you ask, like, what, are we, what needs to be done to keep in mind you know, the possibility for politics to focus on the policy issues that we've been talking about whenever the next federal election is, et cetera. And it's this, this public dialogue that your podcast contributes to by inviting people to, to say, what do we want from housing? So I often am trying to help people say, we want home prices to stall, mm-hmm. if not fall. And in addition to that, I think we now need a conversation with people, to, you know, like, who's affluent? This comes back to where we started. Many, many times people say, like, I'm not rich. And that's fine. You're not Jeff Bezos. I'm definitely not Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. I'm not Elon Musk. I'm not a billionaire. And I definitely think we can expect much more from billionaires in terms of what they're contributing to make this, their countries and planets a better place. Mm-hmm. But I don't have to be Jeff Bezos to be affluent. 
And I think people can ask more of me as a homeowner in Metro Vancouver, whose home is, you know, has, has more than doubled in value over the 18 years compared to what I put into it. You know, that's given me like over like a million dollars of a windfall. You can ask more of me. And that's happened to actually a range of other people. And so I think right now, if we're going to keep this alive, we need to have conversations about who's affluent. And it's not just income. And here's where actually I want to call out the federal liberals. When they started in 2015 and Prime Minister Trudeau said, you know, we're going to ask the, the rich to contribute slightly more, they went after higher income. Mm-hmm. But it is not income that is primarily driving inequality in Canada today around the planet. It is capital. It is wealth and the returns to wealth. And the most common kind of wealth that exists in Canada is housing. And so we have to have a much more nuanced conversation with that. Because right now, when one of your listeners goes to work, 100% of their income from work will be subject to tax. Mm-hmm. If they take some of that after-tax income and they invest in the stock market, 50% of any return on their investment in the stock market will be subject to tax. But if you're a homeowner like me getting windfalls from your housing wealth, barely any of that will ever be subject to tax. Right. That's bad public policy in terms of raising revenue. And it signals to Canadians, oh, I should treat housing as my investment strategy because government's saying we're not going to tax it as much, so they must want me to do that. That then reinforces the problematic housing system we have, and we need to disrupt that. Well, I hope we keep having these conversations. Uh, in the meantime, I want to thank you, Paul, for taking the time to speak with me about it. Uh, my pleasure. Have a great day. Partner, that's P-A-R-T-N-A, is a group looking to work with multiple levels of government to add density and new housing options to existing detached and semi-detached neighborhoods, with the added goal of combating anti-Black racism in cities. They have already made headway in cities like Toronto and Vancouver. Cheryl Case is the planning director, and Jason Allen John is finance director, and I asked them both how Partner is working to find new housing solutions in existing neighborhoods. Cheryl, I wanted to begin with you. Uh, you're the co-chair of the Balanced Supply of Housing Nodes Knowledge Mobilization Committee, so uh, I was hoping just to start off by asking a bit about the work you do in, in that capacity. Sure, thank you, Glenn. So, as my role co-chair, I've helped the committee to make connections with spacing. Uh, the podcast is one of the really important things that we wanted to do to connect with folks across the country and talk about the innovations that we've been exploring through the node. Mm-hmm. And also we've hired a communications person that will help us to mobilize knowledge that we're generating in this research. So really excited about that work. Right on. And the, the theme for this episode is uh, breaking our addiction to high home values. And I wanted to ask you both, like, what does that mean to you and, and whose addiction is it? Because uh, I feel like a lot of people just feel like they're at the whim of a, you know, volatile market. But, uh, you know, th- this kind of concept suggests that th- there's something that we can do at, at a ground level and then at, obviously at larger uh, governmental levels. Yeah, so I'd say that, like, breaking addiction to high home values is something that the system as it exists perpetuates, right? So the system requires you to be looking to consistently be asking for more money for your property if you are a homeowner, mm-hmm. right? Telling you that it is the right thing to do to charge higher rent, to even evict people unfairly, right, through an eviction, mm-hmm. so that you can get higher rent. Because there's anxiety that everybody else is doing this, everything else is getting more expensive. And so in order to secure my position in the economy, I need to keep up by essentially pushing lower-income people down. We need to break that, right? Because we're seeing that every generation of, of this practice is leading to the population of people who are even able to have the choice to fall into this addiction of high home values is getting smaller, right? The number of people who are able to get into the home ownership market and to be able to rent out is getting smaller. We're increasingly raising higher and higher rents. Um, and this is just frankly unsustainable. So how do we develop a housing market where we can charge fair rent, where people can be stable in terms of being able to live within community and be a part of community without fear of eviction 
And um, yeah, I'm really excited about the work that the Balanced Supply of Housing Node is doing to get towards that outcome. Yeah, Jason, would you agree with that? Yeah, I agree. And I also like, in a sense, as a mortgage broker and being in the industry for a while, I think also that we have a in society, because you kind of mentioned government and then everybody in a sense, mm-hmm. the home ownership or like, you know, the, you know, I guess I, everyone phrased it, the Canadian dream or the American dream of home ownership, I think has been almost like monetized in a way that makes the prices go higher than they need to be because of based on that value always kind of going up and how it's not only a place to live, it's an investment. So when you start mixing investment and where you need to live in, it starts changing what the value of a home is, right? And I think that's what has increased home ownership prices increases across like the world in general, right? Just for that reason, because if it's not only a place that I live in, it's also an investment, I look at it differently, right? And and I do want the value to go up if I'm a homeowner, right? So it's like it it, it, it it's a it's a one one or the other. Like what do you want? And as a society we have to be able to if we want prices to go up, it has to be balanced with supply. And I think that's mm-hmm. where, you know, government comes in and to increase supply to at least there'll be a balance off, right? You can have the assets go up, but you can't have the assets go up and no supply and make it a, a constraint more than it is like a surplus. But I think if we had surplus housing, it would make the problem a little bit easier, right? Or just having more options for people in a sense, right? Right. Because we talk a lot in the news about, you know, foreign investors and house flippers and that kind of thing. But it, it seems like uh, property values have, have reached a level where even just regular people, it's just home ownership has become a kind of a cottage industry for just regular everyday people who can afford or who could have afforded to purchase a house whenever they did. Yeah, like my parents bought the house that I grew up in making very like nominal income. Like they were not making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. There was a time when being a homeowner was a choice, right? Like to a certain extent, people right. who are making lower incomes could find their way into the homeownership market. And you know, my parents bought in a bungalow or in Etobico, they weren't making big money. They had also three children to take care of, uh, black immigrants buying a house. You can't, you don't really have the potential for that to happen today. Right. Right. Like for people to have the choice to get into homeownership. Like people, you have to make a hundred thousand dollars a year plus as an individual to even consider that opportunity. Right. And have a bank of mom and dad. Right. Absolutely. Well, let's move to uh, the the project you both work on called Partner. I was hoping you could just kind of explain uh, how Partner came together and, and what, what the basic mandate is for that. So I've been working in a policy for the missing metal for some time and hoping someone else would come along and start to actually work on a development solution to this issue. Mm-hmm. And so seeing that no one was doing it, I was like, okay, I guess I, guess I got to do it, right? So I got out there and I, um, I was connected to Jason, which is, amazing and we started working on partner so partner um the name itself comes from the the jamaican tradition of community-based banking Mm -hmm. and so through partner we help keep families and communities together by supporting homeowners to build affordable housing on their property and that includes basement apartments lingerie suites uh story edition all the way to you know amalgamating properties and building low-rise apartments yeah, and basically, Glenn, our goal is to help with this housing supply challenge, as we were talking before, by using, you know, land that's available. There are abilities for people who, the way Toronto, you know, um, land policy has been over the years to build single detached homes. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of land that's available for us to use to put, like, laneway homes or for people to put basement apartments. And then what our goal and our mandate is, is to try to just to assist these homeowners in bringing on that additional supply that can assist in creating more options. As, you know, I was saying at the beginning with, with, with the challenges where housing prices go up, right? So we're looking to work with everybody on like homeowners and also, you know, government in order to create a solution on the ground level where everybody can kind of participate that owns a home. So 
It's we're just trying to give options to people because, you, as you know, construction and renovation is a very scary thing to do. Mm-hmm. If we can add value in providing that support and also providing uh, great ways in financing and funding these these projects, I think it can add a lot of rental units to the market at an affordable rate that will just create more options for people. And this this seems like the kind of gentle density that uh, we we talk a lot about in in urban urbanism circles. Yeah, right? Like, it's a really exciting thing because uh, there's so many property owners who are seeing the crisis of housing affordability and they want to do something, right? They, just, they don't know what to do. Right. They don't know what to do. No one is reaching out to them to help them. That's where we come in to help them to, to build affordable housing. I'd add in also one thing that's really special about what we do. The partner itself is a black founded Black-led organization. Mm-hmm. And so in California, they've been having a program of helping homeowners to build affordable housing on their property for years. And so one of my colleagues has found done research on you know what's happening in California. And it turns out people who are building affordable housing on their property are more often white people, right? So the Black and Latin American people are not building affordable housing on their property. Uh, actually, specifically Black people are not building affordable housing on their property. And it's for a variety of reasons, including that Black people are systemically excluded from the housing ecosystem, right? So mm-hmm. if you don't have a family member who is familiar with development, that's an additional barrier to you looking and saying that I can do development myself and I can build affordable housing for my family. You know, thinking about, you know, who's most at risk of displacement, we've seen so many studies that found that black residents are at the highest risk of displacement, racialized people as well. And so, you know, while we're working on partnering with property owners, both for the housing on their property, as, you know, people connected to the black community, we are very cognizant and aware and dedicated to also making sure that we're building relationships within the black community to support that community from being displaced. And we're also we're really excited about that as well. Absolutely. And so I wanted to ask who who's on board currently, because I know you're you're looking at implementing this in Toronto and Vancouver. Uh, I've seen the some motions involving partner at Toronto City Council. So uh, it seems like you're you've got to government's attention at the local level. Yeah, so we've had uh, we have a building community, so we definitely have support from the city of Toronto, they passed the motion May 11th mm-hmm. for the city to support six four solutions to support partner and affordable housing development with property owners. We're working with the confronting anti-black racism unit. They're very dedicated on solutions to ensure that black residents are not displaced from neighborhoods as they currently are being displaced due to rising rent. And we have a community of property owners who are excited uh, to see the model develop. Mm-hmm. We have a couple of property owners who we are building pilots with as well. They volunteer their property to be used to you know, further develop the model and explore and test out the model. We also have a support from Altona Credit Union as well, who's very excited to see this be a way of building community and building affordable housing and so we're also, you know, partnered with University of Toronto is a great supporter as well. There's a huge list of supporters. We have private sector support from KPMB, which is one of the larger architectural firms mm-hmm. in Toronto. Um, and we also have a really good partnership with Garrison Co., who is our technology partner as well. That's that's really impressive. Uh, so, like, what what are the immediate next steps? Well, I, I guess I should say, at what stage uh, is this project at? And, and then what are your immediate next steps? So we've, we've done a lot of research. And so we're at the stage now where we can further fine-tune what we've developed, building on our relationships with folks interested in a pilot, developing out drawings and you know, proceeding with those conversations with folks to like, you know, make an example and we're actually planning out to have a conversation sometime this fall with folks um, to learn more about their experiences in developing affordable housing and to make sure that we're 
developing a a system that they can plug into to meet our shared objectives of building affordable housing. Right. And and on the financial side, Jason, the it seems like these additions or these alterations uh, to these homes, uh, you know, people are always worried if they are homeowners about, as we said, like they're a decline in property value. It seems like these uh, additions will also raise the property value in, in some ways for the homeowner while still finding ways to house people and, and keep a, a sense of community. Yeah. And that's the, honestly, the great thing about partners that we're trying to just help people increase their value but also increase the value to society at the same time. Mm -hmm. So the financing component of it becomes like a net increase to the homeowner because of the immediate value of what it does to the land. So at the end of the day, the best thing to do with your land is bring it to highest and best use. use, And by adding an additional unit does that. So it kind of accomplishes the homeowner's goal of increasing the value of their home and then it accomplishes our goal of trying to bring more housing supply to the market. So it's, it's a, I feel it's a win-win for everybody. And um, it's a idea that, you know, like Cheryl said, is we're at the stage where we're now fine-tuning and uh, getting it where it needs to go so we can put it out there on a more broader basis. And uh, in scenarios like this where, you know, it, it looks like a win-win, what are, what are the barriers that you're facing at the moment? Well, some of the barriers are are definitely going to be on the um, raising the capital necessary to assist the demand that will come available from once we launch the program. I think it's going to be important for us to just make sure we structure the finance portion on it where it's beneficial to the homeowner and also beneficial to providing affordable housing, which is key to this, right? What we don't want is to just do a bunch of this and people just all of a sudden are charging high rents for what we're creating. So those are the key components for us. Um, And that's what's going to make this successful. But like I say, like a barrier is just making sure we have enough uh, capital associated with to get the work done. And then at the same time, making sure there's enough labor to take care of the the processes because there's also shortages and labor shortages when it comes to construction. So just key on working with our partners and being able to satisfy those needs. And uh, the the idea too, uh, if I understand it, is that that these units that this uh, partner program creates would sort of exist in a pool of affordable rental housing in an effort to, as you said, not not just to put an addition on someone's home and then they just generate extra revenue, but the, there's some eye towards keeping these additional units affordable in in sort of long term. We want to determine that it it's fair, right? Right. So if we're gonna help build this stock. At the end of the day, it can't be punitive to the homeowner where they're locked into a contract or a, a stipulation with us forever. But then at the same time, it can't be so short that it doesn't, like we, all the housing that we build all of a sudden get put back on the market and be, be of market value, right? And that's what you don't want. So there, what we're, where, where our fine tuning has to be created is in like, what is that balance that makes sense for the homeowner? But then also is, enough supply that gives um, affordable rentals out there because at the end of the day, the if you rent it, maybe at market rent, the homeowner could generate a little bit more income. So there would be an incentive to them on that side. So how do we make it in a way that it incentivize them to not want to do that? How do we design the program so it incentivize people to make it and keep it affordable as opposed to not? So what is that and how does that look? I think that's where our our last hurdle is. And then once we get through there, we have a couple of ideas, but um, once we figure out exactly what makes the most sense and then test it and then uh, test it with our market and our, the people that we're working with. And once that does it does well, we can then put it out there to what makes sense in the market. And I, I'd add that, like one of the, the things to help with that is, you know, we, we really care a lot about building relationships with community. Mm-hmm. Right. So there are a lot of, resident association across Toronto, uh, across Canada that look at a variety of issues. Um, some of them also look at affordable housing, right? Or some of them include members that are really concerned about affordable housing. So that's why our partnerships with resident associations is so important because we want to make sure that people are involved 
in conducting outreach, you know? So, you know, we have a property owner who is building affordable housing on their property, supporting for them to be connected with their neighbors so that their neighbors can see what they're doing and be inspired to also build affordable housing on their property because there's so much potential and missing little development, right? So even, you know, take, for example, Etobicoke, a lot of properties right now, it's a fairly simple process to take your bungalow and turn it into a two-story single-family house, right? And, you know, with, with the missing middle, there's an idea of allowing it to now be two duplexes or triplexes, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so there's so much potential for affordable housing to be developed. So if we are building a community of folks who are investing in this model, right, by being a part of this community of affordable housing development, then that will fully support our mission of allowing us to keep families and communities together. So people are not being displaced from the neighborhood. They will always have an option in their neighborhood to create a neighborhood and to access affordable housing. If a crisis is a state of fear, the antidote to fear is hope. But it's hard to find hope in the face of quickly diminishing housing options at increasingly unaffordable prices. And for some people, there's no time to wait for things to improve. They are facing the dire prospects of moving, settling for housing that doesn't fit their needs or the needs of their family, or risking homelessness in a time of overcrowded shelter systems and improper supportive funding. For hope to exist, Every level of government, every agency and nonprofit, everybody has to rise and tackle this crisis. Doing that is going to require many of us to leave our comfort zone and change the way we think about housing in Canada, what its purpose is, and who it's for. Because it's meant to be for everyone, we all need a safe, reliable, affordable place to live. When people don't have that, it means something is fundamentally broken and the repercussions are many and terrible. We recognize the problem, we are gathering the research, and we're generating the ideas to combat this problem. What we need now is the political and personal will to change. Thank you for listening to The Overhead. This podcast is a co-production of Spacing Radio and the Balanced Supply of Housing Node. The Node is bridging gaps between research evidence and housing outcomes so everyone in Canada is able to access adequate housing and shelter in our neighbourhoods and communities. The Balanced Supply of Housing Node is part of the Collaborative Housing Research Network, a joint initiative between the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. Thank you to Cheryl Case for bringing us the idea for this series, and to Katrina Tarnoski, Penny Gerstein, and Alina McKay for helping facilitate it. This is the final episode in our special series. If you liked the overhead, please share it around.